0: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Wednesday was International Women's Day, and we'll be talking with Rebecca Solnit here about the feminist movement that's developed over the last few years. She calls it fearless, unapologetic, and gorgeously transformative. Rebecca's new book is The Mother of All Questions. But first, we're focusing today on the resistance to Trump and Trumpism. The biggest surprise of the season is not that Donald Trump is so crazed, but that so many people have joined grassroots resistance groups. First, there were those women's marches all over the place the day after the inauguration, something like... Five million people marched that day in hundreds of cities and towns. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And more recently, members of Congress have faced thousands of angry constituents at dozens of town hall meetings. So much is going on and so many groups are forming that it's hard to keep track. Later in this show, we'll focus on what seems to be the biggest of the new resistance groups, the one called Indivisible. But first, we turn to The Nation's Joshua Holland. He's put together a guide to the landscape of grassroots resistance for The Nation magazine. He's a writing fellow at The Nation Institute and host of Politics and Reality Radio. Joshua Holland, welcome back.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, John.
0: So for this project, how many groups did you start with and how many did you write about for the magazine?
1: Well, I started with a a list of 75 groups. I narrowed it down for a piece for the nation.com, the online site. And I think I looked at 18 or 19 different groups, and, and we have a an updated version of that piece in the magazine, and we narrowed it down to, I think, eight or nine in that piece.
0: And we have time to do, I don't know, about six in, in this uh, segment. So let's start with... Uh, what seems to be the biggest and most successful, Indivisible. We'll be speaking with one of the Indivisible people a little later in the podcast, but we need you to tell us the basics. What is Indivisible? What's their strategy?
1: Well, Indivisible is a really interesting project in that it started with a handful of former and current Hill staffers, and they first set out with kind of a modest goal, which was that they were going to publish a guide that would help people understand how best to communicate with their elected officials, with their representatives on Capitol Hill. But then it became something else, because what they saw, and I have to say, John, I, I I heard this theme again and again talking to all of these different people who had started these new groups, is that they they started something and then they were overwhelmed by the response to it. So they started out with this publishing this just this basic guide how to get in touch with your members of congress and immediately the google doc where they had hosted that crashed and they started to get a uh, uh, dozens and dozens of inquiries and people wanting to get more involved so they added these indivisible groups these local groups and people came to them and said i am going to organize something in my community and i need help so what was started as kind of this guide to getting in touch with your members of Congress became a cluster of local grassroots groups. And um, I believe that they're up to over 5,000 of these groups nationwide. If I type in my zip code, I get, I think I've had six of them within 30 miles of of my place in the Hudson Valley in New York. So it really has exploded. And um, I think it's one of the things that's interesting and about indivisible is that they've taken some lessons from the Tea Party movement, and I, you know, I don't think that we want to compare these new efforts with the Tea Partiers for a whole host of reasons. But as far as just looking at strategy, the Tea Partiers realized that they didn't have the that Republicans in uh, in Washington did not have the power to set the agenda. That they, they realized early on that they could only react, and to do so at a local level, to turn out lots of people to get in contact with their representatives. And this is a model that I think Indivisible has adopted with zeal. And uh, we're seeing a, a lot of, of the same kind of town hall actions that we saw from the 2 party years in 2009, 2010 we're seeing right now.
0: You survey a lot of organizations that I knew nothing about. One has the wonderful name Run for Something. What is Run for Something?
1: Run for Something is an organization dedicated to encouraging and recruiting and assisting young people to run for local office. And it was started by some former Clinton staffers. These are political pros. They identified a gap in in the existing infrastructure, in that it was very hard for young people who have not maybe had the some of the advantages of doing a White House internship or whatever to 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 get the training that they needed and and in some cases financial support that they need to run for office, so they're encouraging people to do that.
0: Another group that you report on is called Knock Every Door. What are they?
1: So when I, when I approach these people, I always ask them, so what is, the, what is the gap that you identified in you know the existing political infrastructure out there that you sought to fill? And the folks at Knock Every Door, they realize that in a modern political campaign, in the traditional structure, it's very hard to get enough people to canvas to actually knock every door they They want to go and and have face to face conversations in all districts, including uh, districts that aren't competitive. so their idea is that instead of doing a kind of traditional canvassing operation where a campaign hires people to train other people to do canvassing. They are doing this in kind of a grassroots, bottom-up way where people are, they give people the tools to reach out to their neighbors and to get other people to reach out to their neighbors. And they're basically trying to knock on every door in America and have a conversation with their neighbors. They understand that face-to-face persuasion is more effective than political ads and and what and what camp candidates say in their stump speeches and so they um, they're trying to like take the so called fifty state strategy and up it to you know every single congressional district in the country the four hundred and thirty five district strategy
0: swing left swing left made a lot of sense to me briefly tell us about swing left
1: their idea is that they would get people who are living in safe congressional districts to identify the closest swing district and go there and and uh, canvass in that district so this is kind of about the the inefficient distribution of Democrats the idea is you have safe districts where you know it's there's an abundant of, of volunteers and you have Uh, swing districts where it's a little harder to find people. And the idea is to kind of flood the zone with people from from safe districts in in, uh, nearby swing districts.
0: Now, what about coordination? Is it really a good idea to have 75 or 80 different groups doing similar things? Shouldn't these people uh, work together? Shouldn't knock on every door, turn over their lists to the swing left people and, and so
1: on? There is a fair amount of coordination going on among these groups. You know, a lot of this is, as I said, really just spontaneous. People furious about the election, figuring, what can I do, and then doing something. And I would expect that, you know, like any group of startups, you would have failures. I mean, not all of these um, efforts are going to take off, but you only need a few to be successful to really change the picture.
0: Another question about the, the, the whole spectrum here, can you tell us whether all of these organizations or most of these organizations are committed to moving the Democratic Party to the left in the Bernie direction?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that most of the people that I spoke to would feel that, that they identify with that faction of the party but some of them are filling in, are filling in gaps in the democratic uh, infrastructure that aren't ideological in nature. So, if you look at, for example, we talked about run for something. They're trying to get young people who are Democrats to run for local office. I don't believe that they're favoring, you know, one ideological perspective over another one. There's a one of the groups that I profiled is project called project 45 they're doing foia they're using the freedom of information act to dig to dig info out of government agencies in the era of trump so they're probably not you know pigeonholable in in an ideological category
0: how many of these organizations actually have real traction in red america or is this all pretty much in the in the blue states
1: well, here's the thing: um, there there are some of these groups are focused in in swing states, including reddish states, but a lot of them acknowledge that there is this this distributional problem between red and blue states, and are seeking to even that playing field. So, a group that didn't make it into the to the online piece is is one called Adopt a State. They're basically raising money in blue states and sending it to red states. So there is a recognition that the Democratic Party has a lot of work to do in red states to rebuild the bench, if you will, and uh, I think several of these groups are working on that.
0: One final question. On the list at TheNation.com, you did not include Brand New Congress or Our Revolution, the the Bernie campaign successor organizations. Uh, Why aren't they on the list?
1: Yeah, and I've gotten a lot of uh, uh, unhappy email about some of the omissions. This piece looked only at organizations and groups that were started after the election, so a uh, brand new Congress was started last March, I believe, I, and our revolution is also part of the Sanders 2016 campaign, an outcrop of that. So these aren't new organizations. These, are, th- these were started in, in before, before the election.
0: You can read Joshua Holland's report on a dozen new resistance groups at thenation.com. Josh, thanks for talking with us today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, John.
0: Indivisible seems to be the biggest of the new groups in the grassroots resistance to Trump, and to date, the most successful. For more on Indivisible, we turn to Jeremy Hale. He's co-author of the Indivisible Guide and a contributor to the Indivisible Project's teams on policy, communications, and development. Like the other Indivisible founders, he's a former congressional staffer. From 2008 to 2012, he worked as a legislative aide in the office of Representative Lloyd Doggett, who represents Austin, Texas. Since then, he's worked in criminal justice reform advocacy at the Sentencing Project and as a public interest lawyer in San Francisco. He's also written for the nation. We reached him today in San Francisco. Jeremy Hale, welcome
2: to the program. Hey, John. Glad to visit with you.
0: Well, the Nation reports that over 1.8 million people have downloaded the Indivisible Guide and that 5,387 Indivisible groups have registered. That's at least two in every congressional district. And that 280,000 people have signed up to participate. Have we got that right?
2: It's amazing. I think it's probably risen in the last uh, few seconds. (laughs) <laughs> uh, because we're literally getting hundreds of new visitors every, every minute or so.
0: You know, the Indivisible Guide started out as this fairly prosaic thing about how to, uh, how to influence your congressman. How do you explain the explosion of, of uh, interest and activism around uh, the project that you started?
2: We didn't create the movement. The, move, the movement was already there. Uh, but as former staffers on, on the Hill... Uh, we wanted to try to demystify the way that, that Congress thinks um, and responds to uh, to local defensive organizing.
0: Well, now it's time for your Minnesota Moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. I was astounded to see how many indivisible groups there are in Minnesota. There's several dozen, and not just in Minneapolis and St. Paul, uh, not just in Duluth, where there are two but, for example, looking just at the north shore of Lake Superior, where, where I've spent many a summer vacation, there are indivisible groups in Two Harbors, in Silver Bay, and in Grand Marais. Grand Marais has a population of something like 1,000. This is this is awesome. How did this happen in all these little places?
2: So we, on, we started a website and added a function to it that would allow people who were interested in, in meeting other activists in their areas to, to connect and people uh, signed up, uh, they began to meet and, and as you said, this is not just happening in, on the East Coast or in, in Northern California uh, but in Iowa, in Eastern Tennessee, in Arkansas, Utah so I think there's been a growing alarm that has uh, really spurred uh, progressives to organize and to take action.
0: The indivisible guide and the indivisible strategy are to follow the example of the Tea Party. Do you really think the left can adopt the strategy of the right and and succeed?
2: Yes, that's right. I mean, we take our inspiration from the Tea Party, having, having uh, worked in Congress in uh, you know, 2009 and, and 10, and seeing uh, the Tea Party organize and, and really be able to stop uh, the Obama agenda. And uh, it's not because we agree with their policies, uh, of course, or their their nasty, sometimes violent behavior, but we think they got it right in terms of strategies and tactics. So a strategy that's focused on your home turf at the local level, uh, focusing on your members of Congress, uh, a strategy that is defensive, um, and that is the source of constituent power. Uh, every member of Congress wakes up in the morning thinking, how am I going to get re- reelected? Um, and so that means, uh, if um, whether you're conservative or progressive, if you're organizing in your home district and, and speaking to your member of Congress, they will listen to you. That's sort of the the insight of the indivisible guide. One thing that that led to the success of of the Tea Party was sort of the focus on defense. So these those conservatives had a lot of different priorities, uh, most of them terrible. But they didn't try to choose among those priorities in a in a constructive way. What they chose chose to do was to just say no. And progressives too, we have a lot of different ideas about directions to take the country, you know, policy priorities. But rather than tra- try to choose and, and potentially fracture on what we should be advocating for, uh, we can all agree Donald Trump has unified us in uh, opposing his agenda. And I think that that's sort of the key to uh, keeping the, the momentum and the unity that we're seeing among progressives going.
0: I've been arguing for a long time that we, that we shouldn't just oppose Trump, but we have to show that we have better ideas and, and that our positive vision is the way to win people and mobilize them for future victories. You, you think that that's not, not going to work, at least uh, with the present Congress?
2: Well, yes. I mean, of course, as progressives, uh, we, we're the party that believes in government. Uh, we think that government can do good. But the fact is that right now we're, we're not going to be setting the agenda. And so our power now is not in setting the agenda, but it's responding uh, to the agenda. And unfortunately, you know, every day we see we have more and more frightening things coming out of this administration, out of the Republican Congress that we have to respond to. Uh, Just today, of course, or in the last 24 hours, we've seen uh, the release of the Affordable Care Act, the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, uh, which is actually worse than expected in terms of uh, costs for poor people and and, and seniors. And so uh, this is a time not for um, working toward...
0: Another question... Gerrymandering has made our congressional districts pretty much either deep red or deep blue. So for those of us who are in blue districts, who are presumably uh, almost all of the indivisible uh, people, what's the point of working on your representative in Congress? But my congressman, I'm from Los Angeles, is, Mm -hmm. you know, totally good. His commitments are totally clear Uh, The Republican side, it's pretty much the same. They don't seem like they're going to change. So what's the point of working on the representative that you have in Congress? Aren't they already committed?
2: We do cover this in our guide, in the Indivisible Guide. You know, what to do if your member of Congress is actually progressive. First of all, we think you should thank them. Uh, Members of Congress respond to positive reinforcement. But also, we look back at what, again, what the Tea Party did. And the Tea Party didn't just focus on Democratic members of Congress. Um, In fact, much of their activism was focused on Republicans, so stiffening the spines of Republicans, making sure they didn't compromise with Democrats or go along with the Obama agenda. And we think that progressives need to do the same thing now. So pushing Democratic members of Congress to use every available tool, Keeping relentless local pressure on these members of Congress to embolden them and stand firm. Um, and so, secondly, I would say that um, there's actually evidence that this is working. So, at the end of, of January, uh, 14 or 15 Democrats voted for Trump's uh, terrible nominee to head the CIA, Mike Pompeo. A couple weeks later, zero Democrats voted for his pick to run the Education Department, Betsy DeVos. The difference between those two votes in those couple of weeks is that constituents showed up and told their senators not to approve uh the least qualified secretary of education in history on average Trump's nominees have been confirmed at a slower pace than that of previous presidents yeah. and another example a couple of weeks ago Congress after these the, all the town halls in the in the during the congressional recess uh Republican Congressman Mo Brooks from Alabama said that Republicans might not be able to repeal the Affordable Care Act, because of these protests. So we see on both both among Democrats and among Republicans that this organizing and speaking to Congress and resisting and just saying no that that resistance is actually working.
0: And what's the relationship of Indivisible to to the Democratic Party, the Democratic National Committee, which says it has a fifty state strategy? Uh, what's the relationship mm-hmm. to local? Democratic parties to candidates to their campaigns?
2: Well, it's a good question. So we're not affiliated with any with any party, and that's intentional because we, as I was saying, we want to keep the pressure both on Democrats and Republicans. The midterms aren't until 2018, so we don't want to send the message that constituents don't have a role until then. We, we need uh, to get out, make our voices heard now. And people are doing that. But that said, we are thinking strategically about how we can get involved in in elections, uh, even endorsing candidates. Um, we're watching the race in the sixth district of Georgia particularly closely. That's the the Tom Price uh, seat um, because it can be a, a powerful signal of things to come. Um, we know this energy that we're seeing around the country with indivisible groups uh, needs to translate from town halls. Uh, to the ballot box in 2018. Um, and we do see indivisible, indivisible being a part of that. The reason why, you know, this, this, uh, special election is so important, we think high turnout, um, will send a clear signals from voters that they're alarmed by Trump's agenda. And we think that that will play a critical role in, in really forcing members of Congress to, to do a better job responding to their constituents' concerns.
0: Trump's greatest weakness right now is all the controversies, uh, especially the role of uh, Russia in his election campaign. Is that something that Indivisible is organizing around or interested in?
2: Right. So one of the the things we do through our website and through social media is the groups that follow us and and, and others um, sometimes look to us for suggestions about how to actions to take. And so on Russia, we are, have been focused on the role of the Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Uh, Sessions widened under oath um, about the meetings he had with Russian officials. Again, we're talking about the Attorney General of the United States. And since that news broke, uh, Sessions recused himself uh, from any investigations involving Russian interference in, in the 2016 elections. Uh, but we don't think that is nearly enough. Uh, so we're suggesting that, um, that constituents contact their members of Congress, um, ask them to demand both, uh, Sessions' resignation and a full investigation into, uh, the Trump administration's connections with Russia. And of course, these are just suggestions. We don't, indivisible groups are free to, to choose their own, uh, priorities. Um, but that's one way that we see as, as an effective way to, um, to, to really demand that our, our members of Congress uh, stand up to, to, and, and take a stand on, on the Russia issue.
0: Jeremy Hale is co-author of The Indivisible Guide. Read it online at indivisibleguide.com and find your own local Indivisible group there. Jeremy, thanks for talking with us today.
2: Thank you so much, John.
0: Wednesday this week was International Women's Day. To talk about how a revitalized feminist movement is changing things, we turn to Rebecca Solnit. She's got a new book out, The Mother of All Questions. Rebecca is a writer, historian, and activist. She's written something like 18 books about popular power, uprisings, art, environment, place, pleasure, disaster, and hope. They include Men Explain Things to Me, the definitive work on mansplaining. She's received a Guggenheim, a National Book Critic Circle Award in criticism, and a Lannan Literary Award. She writes for The Guardian. She's a contributing editor to Harper's, and her official bio declares that she's a product of the California public education system from kindergarten to grad school. We reached her today in San Francisco. Rebecca Solnit, welcome back.
3: Always lovely to hang out with you, John.
0: Well, we're taping this on Uh, Tuesday, the day before many of the marches and rallies and protests for International Women's Day. So we want to talk about the big picture, the changes that seem to be underway. Uh, A revitalized feminist movement is changing things despite what we see in the White House. Uh, How would you describe it?
3: There was this really extraordinary set of years, two thousand maybe 2012, 2013, 2014, where the rules really changed. Uh, and there were a couple specific cases, the Steubenville rape case involving a high school football player, and the New Delhi rape case, which was horrific and resulted in the victim's death. And um you know, and then the Bill Cosby scandal or scandal's kind of a tasteful word for serial rape crime spree. But there were a bunch of cases that really drew attention to violence against women in a way I had never seen before and that really said, we're not going to take this anymore, you can't pretend it's not happening. And part of what was fascinating with cases of people like Cosby was that he was somebody who'd gotten away with it forever, and then there was a real sense that the rules changed, and you could see guys being baffled like, what, I can't punch her? What, I can't rape unconscious people? what they they have human rights this is so confusing but we do and uh it was a huge shift it had a lot to do with obama's title 9 enforcement on college campuses but that was really led by students on many of them rape survivors on campuses you know but it was really broader and deeper than that and uh, you know at the other end of the spectrum there's pop figures from emma watson to beyonce who had a lot to say about feminism. It was really a shift in visibility and setting standards of acceptability, appropriateness, um, how we would describe things, who was going to be heard. It was huge.
0: Well, let's talk about silence. You call silence the universal condition of oppression.
3: Yeah, the longest essay in the book, Almost 12,000 Words, is about silence. And writing it, I thought at the beginning I was going to write about how women are silenced, but then I realized that gender, as it's socially constructed, is really a set of reciprocal silences. And I had to write about the ways in which men are silent and silenced, too, that patriarchal power is a trade-off for a certain kind of deadening, a certain kind of absence from kinds of emotion and expression, maybe sometimes from empathy and compassion, And so that's the silence that demands other kinds of silence from other kinds of people. And, you know, it's a big survey essay essay that also looks at the extraordinary feminists of the 1960s and 70s who focused on silence over and over and over, everyone from Susan Griffin to Audre Lorde. And that's really kind of a way to narrate the whole, whole history of the women's movement, because the right to vote the right to get an education, the right to control your body and your reproduction, are all really, maybe not literal speech in terms of saying words out loud, but they're forms of speech, if speech is the right to self-expression and self-determination. And the lack of those things is a kind of silencing, a kind of your voice doesn't matter, your opinion doesn't matter. So it's always been a fight against that silencing.
0: You have a wonderful sentence. The city of silence has more than one street.
3: You know, there's a phrase or a term that a law professor at Columbia uh, invented, intersectional. That's a very important part of feminist and human rights discourse right now, which is about the idea that two different categories, let's say women's rights and racial justice intersect. And of course, I make atlases. I I live in and think about cities a lot. I always see a literal intersection. And so that was really about thinking about kind of justice and identity as a kind of city space and these points of intersection where we think about blackness and queerness at the same time, where we think about immigrants and women's rights at the same time.
0: We've also seen furious campaigns to silence women who speak out in defense of feminism. Social media, of course, has become a new battleground. The Guardian did a study of vitriolic comments aimed at their columnists. And remind us what they discovered about that.
3: Uh, Yeah, that uh, eight of the ten most attacked people were women, two were men of color. And that's really part of the horrific new landscape that... Silicon Valley has created and that there's ways that trans people and human rights organizations use social media very effectively, but it's also been a place made by and in many ways for white men. The way, for example, Twitter fails to regulate threats, including rape and death threats and hate speech, has really made it a breeding ground for harassment campaigns against Anita Sarkeesian, against Leslie Jones, against a lot of people who dare to be female and have opinions at the same time.
0: If we're talking about the backlash, I guess we have to talk about the White House here.
3: Yeah, which every time I think about it now, it just feels like a very large boys clubhouse with a bunch of sulky boys plotting how to war against everybody else. And I know there's some women in there, but, um, you know, there's so much misogyny and, you know, almost all white male cabinet. And, um, you know, they've got one black guy and, for better or worse, Betsy DeVos for education. And it's kind of interesting because I I joke that his slogan was Make America 1958 again. (laughs) And the desire to return to, you know, coal mining, which is obsolete for a lot of reasons to, you know, the focus on manufacturing as where jobs are, which they haven't been for a long time, the attempt to take away reproductive rights, and just really roll the clock backward, is a kind of nostalgia for that happy days fiction of, you know, or maybe father knows best fiction. But I don't know if it'll work. And you're not going to make this a white country the way that it was back then. You're not going to... There are a bunch of people who are homophobic, who are racist, who are anti-Muslim, who are misogynist, but they're not the majority, and I don't think you're going to successfully convince people that women shouldn't have jurisdiction over their bodies nationwide. I see it as a civil war, and I'm not convinced that they're going to win. And I'm not convinced they're going to lose. I also feel like we need to fight like crazy.
0: We've also seen the the appearance of different kinds of speech on the feminist side. One of my favorites, a woman who you mention at the end of your book was Emma Selkiewicz, that Columbia University uh, student, remind us about Emma Selkowitz's new forms of speech.
3: Emma was an undergraduate art major at Columbia University who reported a student, a fellow student, had raped her, who, who had also been reported by other students for sexual assault. And she found both the university and the justice system so unhelpful that she made her senior thesis project a protest in which she carried a dorm mattress, a dark blue dorm mattress, like the one she was raped on, around campus the whole time, like every time she was on campus for the whole fall and spring semester that year, uh, 2000, and when was the climate march? That's how I did it, 2014, 2015. I mentioned that because I actually went and followed her around in 2014, the day after the climate march. And it was extraordinary. After the other students knew what she was doing, she never carried the mattress alone. She always had help, often students carrying it behind her, like a, a sort of funeral profet- procession with this as kind of a funeral beer or coffin. And it was just this brilliant performance piece. She reminded me of Maya Lin, also a really young student who made a kind of monument, that let us see suffering in a different way, in that she made what happened to her something tangible, something that wasn't going to go away, something you couldn't ignore. Uh, something, but she also made her pain something that people could help her with, and it was just so moving to see the day that I was there, seven or eight giggly but fiercely resolute young woman carrying this dark blue... Single mattress around all over campus and everyone knowing what it meant it was a it was brilliant you've been
0: criticized for emphasizing the, the victories and successes for too much celebration of solidarity and liberation and uh, not enough focus on the obstacles the outrages the losses not enough on everything that remains to be done what do you say to those critics
3: oh my god there's some that's that's such a left a standard left wing framework i I think there's a lot of people who come from the mainstream who love being on the left because we're talking about the things that are being repressed in the mainstream and kind of how bad it is but I grew up in the left, and I feel like that's done really well by a lot of people. There's lots of people telling you how much everything sucks out there, and that the job that I've really taken on since Hope in the Dark in 2003, is to talk about our victories, about the long arc of change. You know, and if you look at women's rights, since, like, when I, I when I was born in 1961, I women did have the vote, but the Ivy League colleges were all segregated against women. Domestic violence was a crime that was basically never enforced unless you turned up dead. Acquaintance rape, marital rape were not not considered crimes. Woman we'd never had a woman on the Supreme Court. We still never had a woman president. But you look at the arc of history and you see steady change in terms of women's rights over those five decades of women's activism. I think it's really important to remind people that we're not in a static world. Things are changing. Some things are changing for the worse. I'm also a climate activist. Some things are changing for the better. And that's really encouragement to keep fighting there's also a strong belief that many leftists have that victories make people give up and go home with a sense of like now the job is finished and it's something like same-sex marriage is a huge victory but it doesn't mean homophobia disappeared overnight and I think you can celebrate something like that it's a huge landmark and keep fighting I actually think that people go home and give up more often because they think we have no power we're not changing anything these problems are intractable. We never win. And so that's really been how I work all along.
0: So we're speaking several weeks after the largest demonstration in the history of American elections, that day after Women's March where what something like 5 million people marched in all over the United States in protest against Trump. Do you think that Trump's presidency might have the paradox of strengthening the resistance, especially from women?
3: fascinatingly weird, scary, unpredictable moment right now on all fronts. And there's a way that the Trump team is so extreme that there's a real sense of backlash that may actually open up more ground for feminism, human rights, tolerance, inclusion, recognizing the plight of refugees, recognizing the value of the environment, of education, of publicly funded programs, of human rights. But we don't know. I'm, I feel like we're in a civil war, so it's not that there will be an automatic backlash against Trump and we'll win and we can sit back and make that happen. It throws into high relief what's at stake and who's vulnerable and um, who wants to harm other people in this country. And, you know, it draws the lines really clearly. And what's exciting for me is that a lot of people who haven't been politically engaged have really stepped up. You know, there's 6,000 chapters of Indivisible that didn't exist before the election. There's uh, huge amounts of money coming into Planned Parenthood and the American Civil Liberties Union and organizations like that. There's a level of engagement in a lot more arenas than that, that I, like nothing I've ever seen before. And it has great potential how do you keep those people going? You tell them that they have power. You tell them that sometimes we win and you tell them that it's possible. I also believe strongly we're the majority. If you take women, people of color, queer people, immigrants, refugees, Muslims, you're describing most of the people in the United States. White men are 35% of the country at most. Nothing against white men, dear John. you. And a lot of them don't agree with that. So that. It, it feels like they're really supporting a constituency that holds a great deal of power, but is deeply a minority. And they got there in part through the suppression of votes of people of color. And, you know, I also want to see, as I advocate my current Harper's column, a revitalized voting rights movement to re-enfranchise all those disenfranchised people. But I see a lot of that happening. It's an exciting as well as terrifying and horrifying moment Yeah, I believe fundamentally what happens is up to us. Will people stay engaged? Will they push hard? Will they not let some of these things happen? We'll see.
0: Rebecca Solnit's new book is The Mother of All Questions. It's out now from Haymarket Books. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, (laughs) John. Last but not least, we have some good news for podcast listeners. Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast has moved to nation.com The Edge of Sports podcast is where sports and politics collide. Hosted by our friend, sports editor of The Nation, Dave Zirin. We've talked with him here about some of the guests on his show, including Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and that famous baseball fan, Noam Chomsky. You can... Also hear Dave's commentary and his rants, along with calls from listeners with questions or comments about the show on Edge of Sports. So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you will find something to love in this podcast. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash Edge of Sports. Take,
3: take, take, take
0: start making sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.